Hi, and welcome to the Drawing Inspiration Podcast. I am your host, Mike Hendley. Episode 31, Turning Marks into Art Using Graphite and Charcoal with artist and YouTuber Scott Meyer. So I just wanted to thank all of you for uh, following along on my uh, creative journey. This will be 31 episodes, obviously, that I've been doing this podcast, trying to improve my art by talking to other artists and creatives, and I think it's been going quite well. It's uh, keeping me honest and keeping me busy, and uh, I feel like it's really made a huge difference, and uh, most of that is due to you, and thank you for coming back each week. Love being able to uh, to speak to you and, and, and to message and have conversations around your art and, and what you're working on, and uh, I just really am enjoying in this community. I'm working on, as I mentioned in a previous podcast, the idea of building some type of community through Discord or some other server that allows us to connect and share and, and kind of take a journey together and trying to improve what we do. So thanks. It's been, uh, it's been great, and I'm really enjoying this, and uh, I love having these uh, opportunities to speak to these wonderful guests. And we'll get to that interview in a moment, just a few updates from uh, the last uh, two weeks. I finished the Chipmunk Commission and that went very well. It was for a woman by the name of Monique. Uh, her husband had uh, wanted me to draw a chipmunk, which I did. And so she received that and another piece of art for her birthday. It was uh, posted on Instagram, so I was so happy to, uh, to be able to contribute to that. And uh, I guess it went over very well, so I was, I was quite pleased. I will be doing uh, prints of that in the future, so uh, keep an eye out for that. I then started a new chipmunk piece. This one's a little bit more challenging. I'll link to, uh, I'm not done it yet, but I'll link to a work in progress shot. This one's a little bit more work because I'm trying to play with focal planes a little bit. I want to kind of achieve that bokeh blur effect you get with photography in the background. And at the same time, trying to highlight the uh, chipmunk's face and then once again, blur out the tree and that he's sitting on this branch and highlights some lichen, which will be at the same focal plane as his uh, nose and eyes. So it's a little bit of fun playing with this one a little bit. He's leaning forward, so it's an awkward pose. The work in progress I'll link to, I, I, the face is different now. I'm still trying to work through the face. It's just odd. He's kind of, he's got an odd position the way he's turned and the head is up a little bit and I think he's got something in his mouth. So I'm still working through that in the next couple days, two, three days. I'll, uh, I think I'll be finishing that one off and then get uh, to some other work. The, uh, the other thing I did in, since the last show is I did some urban sketching. So I haven't really done a whole lot uh, this year. And so I took an opportunity to head out to Almont, which is uh, a little town not too far from uh, where I am, about 10 minutes from where I am. It's actually the I guess the hometown of uh, James Naismith, who invented basketball. So there's a statue of him right in downtown. So I was drawing around there, and it's a beautiful little town. If you're ever out in this part of Ontario, it's worth checking out. Uh, beautiful food and people, and uh, definitely worth the stop and ice cream. <laughs> and uh, so I did some urban sketching of what was the old post office, and it was uh, it was fun. It was good to get out. I set up my tripod and my uh, gurney easel. Uh, that's the easel that I used uh, or built using James Gurney's um, instructions that you can find on his website. And uh, so I built that out, 
uh, last year, and I've been using it as my urban sketching platform. So I had a tripod, I had this little thing, um, the, the easel, and I was using a, a Pentalic um, watercolor pad. It's my first time using the Pentalic paper. It's it's fun. It's really nice, heavy paper just waiting to take on the water. So that's been uh, that was kind of cool. So I was drawing that uh, with pencil. I kind of was working on the post office and some of the people and things like that. I sketched it really quickly with pencil, and then I used my uh, Fude, my new Fude Confucius pen uh, to to kind of draw it out. I wasn't too happy with that, so I switched back to my sailor with the um, the green sailor with the Fude nib on it, and I was a little bit more successful with that. And then what I did is I actually switched to a brush pen, and uh, that was providing me a little bit. Uh, more ability to kind of get the look I wanted. So I actually use, I ended up actually using three different pens on that. And I was happy with how it turned out. I ended up painting it with some uh, watercolor afterwards. And I, I think I could have done a better job with that, but it, it is what it is. Uh, one of the things I did try at the end is I left a bit of the watercolor. I, I didn't put watercolor everywhere on the urban sketch. I, I kind of left a corner available. And I had just received water soluble graphite. So I spent about, I don't know, 10 minutes with this water-soluble graphite. I don't have a picture of it, but um, it was enough for me to think, I'm going to do a dedicated piece on this. So keep an eye out between now and the next show. I'm actually going to post a piece, I think, where I'm just going to ink and then use water-soluble graphite to kind of achieve those tones and those values. And um, it's the graphite was surprising to me because I expected some kind of like just a normal pencil and I would sharpen it and it would be this different type of graphite. But these are actually solid. There's no casing to them. They're solid pencils. And um, there's, I think, three different levels, like 2B, 4B, 6B or something like that. So once you hit them with water, the uh, the graphite kind of just spreads as it would like a, like a watercolor. And uh, so... I'm really kind of compelled to try some more of this, and it's been just really crazy hot for the last kind of week and a half, so the idea of getting outside and doing urban sketching just hasn't been very appealing. So the other thing I did is I ordered an umbrella, <laughs> and uh, I'll post a link to that. It's If you are doing any plain air work, uh, I found this umbrella on Amazon, and it's worked really well because it, it's got basically, I think, three joints on it. And you can also turn the umbrella, and it's got, it's not typical kind of circular pattern, it's more like a rectangular shape, and so it's a really easy kind of umbrella to get into the orientation so that, you know, maybe you're getting a little bit of shade, but more so you're covering your work from sun, and being able to gauge the values and not have your your paper be uh, shining back at you, so it's, I, I tried it a little bit. I'm really, really happy with this this purchase, especially with uh, the last week, week and a half of heat and sun. I think uh, it's going to level out a little bit this week, and then I'll take it out again and, and try it out. So that was a, it wasn't expensive, but it was a, a worthy purchase to do some plein air work. So July 12th was the 60th anniversary of the Etch-A-Sketch. And so what I did over the weekend was I did two sketches with my Etch-A-Sketch. I have this, we bought it for the kids years ago, and I've had it on my shelf in my office with nothing on it. And uh, I really, I think I did one sketch on it, like just a horse head years and years ago. And I just picked it up for some reason and 
decided to try doing a bird. So I uh, started drawing out a bird with the Etch-a-Sketch. I think it turned out okay. And then I um, shook it <laughs> and away went the bird. And then I tried a tiger. And the tiger, I thought, turned out really well. And so I think I'm actually going to order one or two of the, the pocket versions. So they're a little bit smaller. And I'm going to play with this a little bit more. I feel that <laughs> the... Uh, because it's an older Etch-a-Sketch, maybe the dark isn't as dark as it should be. And maybe being too critical, but I find that when I'm drawing it out, I'm not getting that contrast. I guess this is what happens with the aluminum powder or whatever is in there. This is not going to be a new path for me, but I think it's one of those things, you know, when you're you're working on your stuff, whatever the, whether that's watercolor or graphite or oil, and you just wander off, and it may be that you, you, you do some sculpture work or you do an Etch-a-Sketch. And for me, it was just an exploration. It was kind of fun to be restricted by these two little knobs, one horizontal, one vertical movement, and forcing you to kind of figure out where this is going to go next and how to get these rounded edges and how to do fills and things like that. So I I don't know. I think if you have access to one or know a young child who has one, because uh, I, I still think it's a great gift for kids, it, just give it a shot. It's... Uh, it's fun. It was good to to play with that. And I didn't realize till afterwards there was a lot of people doing this, like on Instagram. And there's a whole, there's a subreddit just devoted to this. And so I was really impressed that uh, there's so many people doing this kind of stuff and uh, doing way better work than I am. But I was so happy to be able to achieve some kind of shape that isn't stairs. And uh, I recommend you trying it out. So 60 years, Etch-A-Sketch has been around. And uh, I think it's now run by a company out of Toronto. But uh, it's it's fun. So uh, check it out. I think actually right now they're on sale at Target. There's some ridiculous, I think six bucks or something like that. We don't have Target in Canada, but anyways, check it out. It's pretty cool. So that's all for updates. I uh, really enjoyed this interview. It's something I've been wanting to do for a long time, and that is sit down and just talk about drawing. And my guest is awesome, awesome artist. And we had a great conversation, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. So here we go. As I continue to try and improve my drawing skills, I'm always looking at other artists and how they work with graphite and charcoal. If you spend more than five minutes searching on YouTube, you will find this week's guest. His recent live drawing tutorials have been a breath of fresh air and inspiration, especially as we struggle with isolating ourselves and being productive through this pandemic. His video productions are top-notch, and his ability to engage the viewers while creating his wonderful pieces is truly unique. He is an accomplished artist, and his breadth of knowledge in charcoal and graphite, as well as painting and color theory, is in one word, impressive. To talk about his creative journey, I welcome to the Drawing Inspiration Podcast, Scott Meyer. Hi, Scott. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. You do this YouTube thing where you... Draw in front of people for an hour and a half to two hours, and you do it twice a week? Yes, twice a week. Yeah, we started out uh, three days a week, and then this last month we've dropped it down to two because it's a lot to maintain. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I I like to think I'm decent at drawing, but every time I watch you, I learn something new. And I think it's it's your knowledge, it's your interaction with the, uh, the viewers and responding to their questions and being able to talk around that. And I just thought it would just be brilliant to have you come on and to understand where you came from. I mean, with the people that are listening, they're always starting to, you know, a lot of people are starting late in life. 
coming to art, deciding to draw in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, uh, or 60s. And we have people that are just teenagers and are exploring art and trying to look at um, how they get into the business or how they just explore their creativity. So I thought it would be interesting to talk about where you came from, because where you ended up is not maybe the normal journey. And I just thought it was kind of interesting to see where you are now. And uh, if we can just talk about that, about your education, did you, like, were you always like the artsy kid when you were growing up? Was that something you're always compelled to do? Yeah, it is definitely something that was always part of my identity. Uh, um, it was, you know, I had a large chalkboard on my wall as a kid. I spent a lot of time in my room just drawing on that. And I always associated um, myself as being an artist, um, although my vision for what that was was fairly limited. <laughs> I didn't really know <laughs> what that meant. I just was good at making pictures and I enjoyed it. It's just something I naturally did. Um, so I always knew that I would pursue the arts in some way. And so then, you know, after high school, I went to art school in, in, in Baltimore at a school called MICA. Um, so I got my undergraduate degree there, kind of, I, I shifted my my degree around a bit. Initially, illustration, I was thinking I'd be an illustrator. And then I took, I enrolled in the um, the MAT program to get my master's in teaching, thinking I would teach K through 12. And so I did most of my curriculum for that, got right up to the end, and I said, I can't do this. <laughs> I, I needed to pursue painting um, further. I just wasn't ready, you know, 21, 22 to get into a classroom and, and and take that route. I needed to explore art a little bit more. So I enrolled in, in the graduate program at University of Alaska in Fairbanks, which is very new at the time. I think I was one of the first or the first painting major to come through the master's <laughs> program, and it was phenomenal. I loved it up there. Um, had some great instructors, and it was a nice contrast going from Baltimore to Alaska. I grew up in a small town in Maine called Bath. It was enlightening for me to experience the various parts of the world. And then, you know, and then fresh out of graduate school, it was um, started a, a family young and, and, and kind of dove right in. And, and I, uh, one of the things that really worked for me in graduate school was, was being a TA and teaching drawing and painting courses there throughout, my, throughout the program. Uh, and I knew then that that's, that's how I would prefer to make my money. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd prefer to make a living. Like that's the model that made sense to me as an artist. The uh, you know I've shown work and I've you know and I've I've worked in galleries and I understand that world and that economic model for people. But it just didn't. It's, still, I have a hard time with that. But the idea of kind of teaching and making that career and allowing art to be its separate thing, I can focus and do what I want to do, uh, has always kind of worked for me. So over time, I've taught at various. School, so up in, at the University of Alaska in Fairbanks. Um, then I, I taught online for many years uh, at the Art Institute of Pittsburgh, um, their online division. So I was both an adjunct and a full-time faculty there. And I also had, I taught here in Colorado, where I am now, at the community colleges, teaching you know, painting, drawing, art appreciation, things like that. So that allowed me to kind of experience both on-ground and online education, um, especially online education fairly early on, and see the value of that and the potential. You know, there's there's limits to to it as a model, but there's also some strong benefits, and it, things are really moving in that direction. So I feel lucky that I had that opportunity, and that's helped kind of inform the the live streaming that I do. Do you think because you've done so much teaching, do you feel the teaching has changed from when you were an early student to being a teacher now? 
Um, and I'm I'm talking more towards. I haven't been through a formal arts program, but I've I've heard people talk about you know challenges. And I think it's a teacher, but maybe it's sometimes it's the curriculum in trying to develop or maintain your voice, your artistic style. Are there challenges in that? Were there challenges for you? Um, how, how do you how do you deal with your students when they're when they're working on pieces in kind of not just fostering their skills, but how do you manage their style? To me, style is something that emerges naturally out of connection with your with yourself. You know, like if if you're being honest with yourself about why you're here and how you make marks, how you engage with the materials, that style will emerge. Um, having said that, it it's helpful to explore other people's work. So throughout my career, I've taken time to, I've been kind of infatuated with various artists and I'll, and, and I'll take what I learned from them and apply it to my own work. And I'll kind of put myself in their shoes to see what feels good. And that then informs my style. So I think that's kind of a natural part of it is, you know, when you see somebody who's, who stylistically you resonate with and you, you feel that connection, I think it's help, helpful to try that out and see how it works for you. But I think chasing style and try to define a style is something that I try to encourage my students to realize that it's, it's a long game. <laughs> like, you know, you, you continually refine that and you get to that point. And it ultimately, if that becomes your driving force is to create something in a style, then I, it, to me, it feels like it leads more towards a dead end um, rather than something that becomes more expansive. So, but in, you know, in art school, I feel really lucky with the programs that I was involved in. And at MICA, um, you know, I had some amazing professors that they taught in such a way that, you know, we explored a wide range of art. There's, you know, painting, good painting is good painting, right? Regardless of the style, whether it's contemporary, whether it's classic, you know, it, it's, there's good painting in there. And we explored a wide range of that. And we were encouraged to, to treat painting like as almost, almost like it was a personal struggle. You're exploring, you're, you're um, discovering the materials new all the time. And I really, I really connected with that. And it's, it's still something that I consider as well as I try not to get locked into a consistent palette or a set of tools or a way of working too much because I, I just love that sense of discovery that, you know, like what happens when you mix these two colors together? And you're like, oh my God, that's amazing. That <laughs> looks like this. I don't know why it does, but I like that. And so I, that's, again, that's just what kind of works for me. And what I've just kind of in the, my kind of peripheral view of the broader art world, you know, there, there are programs that, that approach drawing and painting, you know, all fine art in, in different ways. There's a lot of these smaller ateliers that are opening that are, um, and there's this resurgence in classical uh, realism, for example. There's this explosion in urban sketching. There, of course, is the contemporary art world that, you know, is, is still going strong. And each, you know, each of these kind of bubbles that are forming brings something new to the, the conversation. And so, um, in general, my, my philosophy is that, you know, it it's more valuable to try to make your bubble bigger and include more what you've learned from each of those areas than try to focus on one and really kind of zone in on a particular style or a particular approach to painting or drawing. Right. Now you've done, you know, recently you're doing a lot of graphite drawing, graphite and charcoal. Mm -hmm. uh, when I look at your site, I see some wonderful landscape pieces you've done. 
and uh, you've done some plein air work as well. I'm sure you've done a lot, but I'm just talking about stuff that I found. Um, are you at a point where you know, you're doing a lot of graphite work? You're doing this twice a week, graphite slash charcoal. Is that? Do you have a first love with all of this? Um, you know, are, is is do you feel that the professional component of what you do as an artist is compatible with the personal? artists that you have inside you are you working on the stuff you want to be working on because i i would i try to envision and i i I just love what you do but i wonder if you get to a point where it's like i have to do another graphite piece but i i miss my oils (laughs) (laughs) i i did get to that point a bit yeah i try to i try to get out and paint every week that's my general goal is to get one painting in a week and i paint in outdoors i paint on location and but it's it's difficult to I guess kind of wrap my head around it. So I'm going to try to I'll try to articulate as best I can. <laughs> the drawing for me has always been the thing that I connect to most easily. Um, painting is the thing that excites me the most, but it's more challenging, right? Like there's like for me drawing it just it's it was something that was very natural. And when I as soon as I picked up. You know, piece of chalk or a pencil. I I knew how it worked, kind of just intuitively. When I encountered painting, I didn't really start painting until I was in college. I got really excited by the challenge. It's like I I knew it well enough that I wasn't intimidated by it, but it was still a mystery to me, and and enough to kind of keep me going. And I still kind of feel that way. And so, doing the drawing uh, exam uh, exercises, the, those live streams, it it feels like coming home every time I do it. <laughs> and so awesome. I really love it. It is, it is a lot to maintain. I don't th- I've never really gotten to the point where I feel like, oh, I got to do another one. It's, it, and luckily, they only take an hour, hour and a half or so. About an hour and a half is a pretty average. So uh, I know I can get in and get out and, and kind of then jump into other work. And I do a fair amount of uh, thinking about what we're going to be doing next, um, kind of trying to find the right image or take the right reference photo um, for me, I think that's the biggest challenge is working from a photo versus from life, which I had done. I've I spent far more time working from life, and I've always been less comfortable working from photos. And so, I think that aspect more than anything is the is the part that I've had to become <laughs> to overcome <laughs> is the working from photos thing. But I, I just enjoy it, and it, for me, I think having that community and engaging and interacting is that's what's really energizing. If it were me just drawing, I don't know as if I would be as enthusiastic, but having everybody there really, I try to make it feel like it, we're drawing together. That's the way it feels to me. And I'm hoping mm-hmm. that it can, it gets conveyed to the audience that yeah, we feel like we're doing this together and that's, yeah. And for each of these pieces, you're drawing them twice. Yes. Yeah. Right? I do one in advance. Yep. For, for the, for the thumbnail. <laughs> yeah. For the, well, for the thumbnail and, and for to, the practice. Like, and I'm like, I, I had early on, I had these, these moments where I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like what is this whole drawing about? And because I, for me, I think it's really important to, in order for me to, to find the right words to articulate what's happening, I need to know what, what is at its core. And and sometimes it's not evident right away. Um, the owl one, for example, you know, I'm like, this is a fascinating image, but I had to do that test drawing to really understand well what what about it is relevant and what's going to help somebody advance their skills, what's going to help me advance my skills. And, and, and it, it, it's all about there's, there's something in that that's going to help me and I need to figure out, figure out what that is. And hopefully that same thing is going to help others as well. So. Right. 
And I apologize to the listener, I am going to focus heavily on the charcoal and the graphite bit of what you do. Um, but I do want to ask you, you talked about painting, what kind of painting are you doing now? Are you doing plein air and is it uh, acrylics or uh, watercolor or? It's all oils. Yeah. All oils. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I, ha- I did, I have worked in, a, in acrylics and pastels and, um, and some watercolor, but oils are, I just keep coming back to it. So. Right. And is, are you doing plein air? I mm-hmm. mean, it's, are you? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, the last few months I've done a couple more pieces indoors, um, but I I like being outside when I paint. That's just what ultimately <laughs> what it comes down to. I like to go out, find a spot, be there, and then go home. I when I'm in the studio, I I, I just don't quite get that level of excitement that I'm looking for. So. Right. And how's the balance? I mean, you talked about starting a family. Uh, are there challenges that you've come across that maybe you can provide some insight on in balancing? this idea that I'm going to go outside and do something for me Mm -hmm. uh, versus, you know, your roles and responsibilities and all of that in the house. Can you, does that take time to evolve and, and how's, how's that been for you? Yeah, I, for me, it does. Um, So in my, in my current job, working with artist network at, at Golden Peak, I get to work with a lot of artists and I have conversations about this, and what I've learned is that it's been different for everybody. I know people who have do have a you know they handle it one way you know like and and I've for me I I struggled with it throughout you know for for several years or many years um, trying to find that balance. But it was really a personal thing. It's it's trying trying to find the priorities in my life and where do I need to be to and to feel good about myself. And I, but I always knew that I need to keep keep working to some degree. Um, and so throughout all of it, I've been able to continue to, to make art to, to some degree, you know, not the level of intensity that I did in art school, <laughs> for example, but enough to keep it moving and keep engaged with it. But I think it's, it comes down to kind of your own, your own personal situation and what you need as an artist to kind of move that forward. But I, I always made that commitment to myself and, and my family supported that, that I, gotta, I have to keep that a, a part of my life at least at some point, because if I let it drop off completely, I'm worried I'll never be able to get it back again. Right. Having said that, though, I mean, I think you uh, mentioned earlier that, you know, I, I have a lot of students who are uh, later on in their life after their families and they're looking to bring back art in their lives. And, and that's, it's a very natural thing. And I see people do it all the time. And one of the things that really hit me early on in graduate school, I was teaching a student, she was in her 80s, and she, had been, you know, she had worked her entire life, raised a family, worked hard her whole life. And when she retired, the organization she worked for gave her money to go back to school and do whatever she wanted. So she started taking art classes. And it was fascinating. She had stopped making art in her teens and her work looked like a teenager's work. Like it had, it had frozen itself <laughs> in time. <laughs> and now she's back in her 80s and she picked up right where she left off. And so that was that was really comforting to see that. And I feel like, and I hope that's something that's true with, with a lot of people that, you know, there's this fear that we lose it, but I feel like there's enough evidence to know that we don't lose it. We just lock it away and we can unlock it when we need it again. So. Yeah. I've noticed, um, I've had quite a few people reach out to me and say they're just starting uh, for whatever reason. It may be that they are, uh, they are triggered by a, a traumatic event or, uh, you know, retiring could be a traumatic event as well, right? Uh, but it's amazing to see how quickly people can 
the skill changing so quickly over time. And I don't know, I haven't seen enough of this to know, is that if you're looking at a curve, are you, are you running exponentially for a bit and then you flatten out? Or is it, as an adult, are we looking at things differently and we're able to evolve much more quickly than we can as a, as a teenager? I don't know why that is, but I find with some people it evolves really, really quickly. And it's like, I don't know. And some people spend a lot more time at it, but I think more than most, and I think you'll agree with me, if you just spend time practicing, you will get better. And you will see the difference between, you know, in 10 or 12 or 15 drawings, you will see the difference between the first and the 15th. Do you see that as well, where people are, I mean, as a teacher, do you see this? Can you, can you confirm that practice is a good thing? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's, and, and, but I think there's also a way to practice. You know, you can put hours in on a drawing and, and not really advance your skills significantly. So I think a lot of it has to do with practicing somewhat in the right way in that having a healthy mindset about challenges and kind of stress or tension in the process, that's what helps you grow. And that may be why perhaps as you know, teenagers, it's difficult to, to look at a challenge and say, I have the confidence to overcome this and I'm gonna lo- I love this challenge. It's just like, no, I can't do it. I'm not going to be an artist anymore. <laughs> right. like, I'm just not an artist. I can't do this. And that's what happens. We learn that in our MAT programs when we study the arts and human development. We reach that age in our early teens where all of a sudden a, a trigger gets flipped and we all of a sudden it, it matters to us that it looks right. And we define ourselves as an artist if we can make it look right or not as an artist if we can't. You know, and we don't see it as a skill. We see it as an inherent thing. And, and that's the part that I think perhaps as an adult coming back later in life with experience and, and overcoming challenges and knowing that you can, you can work towards something that it allows that practice to, de- to develop in that way. And I, I try to tell my students this as well, is that you want, when you're working on, a, on your drawing, when you're done with your drawing, you want to be able to analyze what you're doing right and what can be improved. You have to have those things. That's what keeps you mo- motivated. That's what keeps me motivated. And it's not to say if, if something needs improvement that you're a failure, it's that that's an opportunity in the next one to keep you going, all right? And, and you also want to know what you're doing well so that you can repeat that. And so having some sort of conscious awareness about, about your work um, is really helpful. And I think perhaps with age, that's something that develops. And so if, for somebody who picks it up later in life, we see that growth curve because it's perhaps there's a confidence that says that. Here's an area where I'm struggle that I'm struggling and that's okay. I just need to work harder at it. But I think the again kind of practicing in the right way and practicing with the idea that you're developing specific skills is really helpful and that's something I try to do in the live events as well is try to figure out what is that skill that we're working on and try to articulate where where am I struggling right now um and where where are the opportunities for me and see how that aligns with the people who are drawing along with me. So, how long have you been drawing? Like how long you 30 years, 20 years? Um, I, I'm not going to ask you how old you are, but... <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm 42, so okay. it's been, you know, what, 24 years uh, since okay. I started art school. So when I really started doing it seriously, and I knew in high school that I was on that track um, to go to, to a, a, an art school. So I went to portfolio days. I built my portfolio, did all those things that I knew I was going to an art school. Um, and so, yeah, 25 years plus of, of kind of committed drawing. Yeah. So. So my question then is, in the last two months doing the live draws, do you feel like you've become better at drawing? I, I do. And, and that's part of what 
kind of led to this series is the idea that I had neglected drawing for a long time. And, and, and then when, you know, COVID hit, we started working from home. We saw this opportunity to say, Let, let's, let's get this started. And maybe there's other people that need a community to, to work um, within. And, and drawing is accessible. It was easy for me to, to kind of get into. And, and that's what I, I found really most valuable. I kind of started it thinking I would, it would be kind of more like a class, like to kind of take a curriculum approach, but very quickly realized that what works is something that's kind of project centric, coming up with a project that we can work on. And within that project, there's something that's going to develop a particular skill. And that has been really helpful to me. And, and, and the feedback I get from viewers is that it's also been helpful for them. It's like, let's just focus on light and shadow on this one and developing form through that. Let's focus on edges on this one or texture on another one. And so in a surprising way, it's, it's been more effective in developing my own skill than I, than I really thought. <laughs> like, you know, I think I went into it thinking more of it being like a, a, a teacher-student dynamic. Mm-hmm. But I really like the way it's settling out into more of a community dynamic where we're all here to learn something together. Yeah, and I think that you've, as artists, even if you have you know, some initial skills around this, teaching someone else will always make you better, right? Um, even if you have a very small set of skills that you've learned over the last few months or whatever the case, being able to even teach a, <laughs> a young child to draw, that was the first thing I did, I think, about six, seven years ago as I went in and, and taught uh, perspective and uh, shading and tone value to um, kids that were in grade three and grade four. And they just they blew me away. Yeah. <laughs> you show them a, a few things and they're like, look at this perspective view I did of my backyard. And it's like, oh my. Yeah. <laughs> and the teacher's like, what did you do? <laughs> yeah. But they just need a little bit, right? And then they run with it. Um, so I think that what you're doing is great. And I, th- I think I would encourage the listener as well. Like if you have some basic skills to be able to turn around and, and take apart what you know and re-deliver that to somebody else is probably, uh, I mean, it's huge, right? It, it allows you to critique your own self in, in how you do what you do. Absolutely. Yeah. No, yeah. I think teaching is, is fundamental. And so I think one of the thing, reasons why it's so energizing for me, every class that I teach, it, I, would, I would just come out of it just excited and thinking about what I'm going to do next. Like, how am I going to apply that to my own work? And in the, the, the most exciting times are, are when I get a student who just doesn't get something. <laughs> and that's, and, and it's exciting is because it's not, it has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with how I'm articulating it. And there's an opportunity in there to find a new discovery about why, you know, why does perspective work for me? Like, it's something that I picked up very quickly. Um, and so it fascinates me that there, you know, there are students who's, who, who they struggle with that, that they have a hard time in kind of internalizing it. And throughout all that, I just I realized that it, it has everything to do with just kind of finding a new way to describe what's happening and in connecting with that in myself. Um, because when, when it does come naturally, like it just, it just happens Well, you just, do that, right? <laughs> it's like the example that I've seen on social media of like how to draw an owl and it says draw two circles and then draw the owl, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, you know, uh, and that's something that, yeah, I really, I, I, like I said, I really get excited about. I love, I love it when, when I'm finding a student who just says, I, I'm really struggling with this. And you just keep working and working and working until it clicks. 
And and then it just gives them confidence that, yeah, I, it, it is just practice. It's work, um, but practicing in the right way and challenging your thoughts and assumptions about things. And, and, and as part of that practice, it's trying to understand what in my thinking is keeping me locked in this unhealthy kind of drawing habit. And how can I change my thinking and kind of come at it at a different angle so that my drawing then changes? And you've done, uh, we'll get into some of the details of some of the pieces you've done, but you use a lot of charcoal, but you've also done graphite. Do you favor one over the other? And maybe based on your opinion, if somebody was coming into this and wanting to enhance their game around drawing, charcoal or graphite? I would, personally, I would say charcoal because it, yeah, it kind of, kind of forces, well, each medium kind of, it, it has an inherent quality that's going to move you in one direction or the other and how it works. So like graphite, it's, it's harder. Um, it's got, it's more kind of silvery. It lends itself to kind of detail and refinement. Charcoal is the opposite. <laughs> and so if you try to make charcoal be like graphite, it can, early on, it can be really frustrating. And what I what I like about charcoal is that it lends itself to the idea of building up the whole drawing at once mm-hmm. and allowing that drawing to emerge on the page. It kind of, if you allow the charcoal to do what it does, it kind of forces you to do that um, and build from broad shapes into, into more specificity. With graphite, you have to make more intentional decisions to do that right. because it lends itself. It wants to pull you into those details much earlier. And so that's why I think charcoal, I would recommend early on because it'll help you to see the whole more effectively, even though it could be really frustrating for, a new, <laughs> for, for somebody new. It's messy. It's a challenging thing to control. There's a big difference between vine charcoal and compressed charcoal. The surface that you're working on can make, make a big difference in how that charcoal is received or how it releases from the paper. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's, I think there's a lot to it. You can really sink your teeth into just the material and how to how to move stuff around a little bit more naturally with charcoal. Yeah, I think I've done two charcoal pieces. I watched you do, I don't remember which piece it was, but you were throwing charcoal down and then you wipe it with your hand. And I'm like, because oh, I work so much in pencil. It's like, yeah. <laughs> you're touching the paper with your hand. Yeah. But it's it's really, you know, it really, people talk about digital where you're pushing pixels, right? But you are really pushing charcoal. You're actually pushing charcoal around the paper. And to see that evolve where you throw more charcoal down and then you wipe it and then you, you move it around is just wonderful to watch. And just back to the point you were saying, if someone were to start out into charcoal, do you have recommendations of a, a decent paper and a, because um, you use toned paper as well, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for some of the work that you're doing. And so would you recommend a type of charcoal or like a charcoal stick or should it be a charcoal pencil? What would be the easiest way if somebody's thinking, I've just done watercolor and I've just done a few drawing. I want to try charcoal. What would you think would be the first kind of few steps there? I, let me think. That's a good question. Definitely get vine charcoal and compressed charcoal sticks as well as charcoal pencils. Um, they're they're going to get you kind of different results. I found with the compressed charcoal sticks, for example, they just get a deeper dark, um, but they come in different weights too. And the pencils come in different weights. The Fine charcoals do. It's like you kind of have to experiment. What I what I tend to see with students is that they'll get locked into whatever they buy first, um, and so I really try to encourage 
um, students to experiment. Just buy a few little pieces, try things out, or you know, in a classroom, maybe we'll swap materials. I'll bring in my own and say, "Hey, try this or try that." You know, so then you get to you get to really feel like what is what is me, what is the material, and that's definitely true with paper. In that, uh, especially for a beginner, they'll I uh, get a lot of students who just think paper is paper, um, but once once they pick up a, a charcoal specific paper, one that's designed to receive and release charcoal, then it, it everything changes. Um, and then and then we'll experiment with like rag paper. I might force them to work on a watercolor paper to see how it receives the material in a different way. Um, so I think experimentation is really healthy early on. So you so you really understand the materials uh, better. I don't know as if I have a particular brand. I've been using Hanamula paper um, okay. throughout the series, and I really like it. I've also been using Strathmore. Um, the you know using toned paper. I've done one on black um, using just the white chalk on top of it. I kind of personally, if it were just me drawing, I would I prefer rag papers, cotton rag. Just there's there's a surface quality that I really enjoy, and I love the way it it releases the material and it kind of lends itself to atmosphere and unification through values. Right. And some some of the, the, the charcoal papers that I have a really distinct kind of printed tooth, I have a hard time with, but they, they work really well. They receive the charcoal just fine. You know, uh, there's, you know, Canson, Strathmore, they all make, all of them make really quality papers. And so it's really a matter of experimenting and seeing what works best for you and going into it with an experimental mindset. And you're not afraid to go with a white charcoal or a white chalk. Um, to, you know, you did the, the owl yesterday, and uh, so you, you went with that. You shouldn't focus on trying to get the values out of the paper you have rather than just trying to preserve the white versus bringing white in, right? Yeah, and see what, just see what works, because it doesn't right. work all the time. <laughs> like, <laughs> I've, I've definitely used the white on, you know, to, try to try to pull out a bright, and it just didn't work. And that's, I, that definitely happened in some of the, the preparatory drawings that I've done. I've, I'll go into it thinking, oh, I'll just come in with some of these bright highlights and realize that they're, it's flatter than the white of the paper. And so if I want to get a, a kind of a luminous effect, I, need, I know I need to preserve that white or, or have some right. sort of strategy around that. But I, at the same time, I, I really I like to embrace the struggle of it. Like, I love that feeling when you feel like the drawing is just going to fall apart. And you got to fight for it. Right? Like there's, a, and, and it's like that. It's that same feeling when you're young and you're learning, and it you're just you're not quite sure if it is. And there's that excitement there, and I I try to maintain that as much as possible. So I I try to encourage that as much as I can with with students as well. As say, don't you know? It's sure this thing this made thing may just fall off a cliff. Just mm-hmm. go with it because in that whole process, you're going to learn so much about how the materials work. And so maybe you lost a highlight. You've, it's got you. Know, you can't erase down to it, but you know, the, try the charcoal or the white chalk on top of it. See how that works. You know, try a razor blade. Try something. Do whatever you can to fight for it, and and in that you're going to learn something new about the materials. So yeah, and I think and you're doing this all in front of a bunch of people, <laughs> right? So you're, yeah. it's not that you're working in a corner of your house or uh, or wherever the case on your lap. Uh, you have people watching you as you're doing these these live uh, drawing sessions, and so. How do you manage that you really take it well when somebody is saying, oh, the, the eyes are too high or the ears are too low? <laughs> <laughs> that is an ego hit. It's hard. <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, 
it's you you handle it so well because it's like you know what i'm i'm coming back to that and that's exactly how you build these right you start um even if we just i know we're talking about the owl because that's just the most recent one but you're working from the outside oh that you know i've got to narrow it down um or i've got to narrow it down because i want it to be in the camera shot and i just need to make it a bit smaller so that i don't have to adjust my camera but um you know just people want I think they want to help, right? And we see patterns. And so that's the challenge too, is people see patterns and they see that, oh, uh, from my perspective, and and people maybe aren't drawing with you, that they're watching it and thinking, you know, Scott, you got the eyes, man. You got to fix the eyes. Yeah. And it's like, I'm not looking at the eyes right now. I'm looking at the shape of the head. I'm looking for that crease at the top of the owl. Yeah. Um, so so how, do you, how do you come out of that feeling positive when people are, you know what? <laughs> Change something. Yeah, I mean, it... it to me, that's the heart of drawing together, right? That's what makes us feel like, all right, there's people watching this. They're, we're doing this together. And, you know, none of these drawings that I'm doing are things that I'm going to hang up or put in a gallery or anything like that. For me, it's an exercise. I'm trying to develop my skill. And if I'm going to do that, I have to confront the quote unquote errors, you know, the mistakes. Right? And, and so they, they're going to be, they're going to be there. All those things I would be finding myself as well. And, it, hearing from the viewers that they're seeing that is just confirmation that they're watching, they're engaged. Um, you know, and some people you can tell they're, you know, they're they're looking for a fight in a way. They're looking they're like, <laughs> hey, that that eye doesn't look very good. And I'm like, well, you're right, it doesn't. <laughs> it's crap. I I should fix that. And so, and I've had some real real legitimate um, observations, and I'm like, I, you're right, I completely missed it. The beak yesterday. What I missed my, I had a blind spot to it and I had it at the wrong angle. And as soon as somebody called that out, it, it, there it was, I could see the solution. And that's really the power of, of drawing together and taking a class. And that's what I hope um, for myself as an instructor. If I come up to a student who's drawing and looking for a way to improve, I need to be able to provide an observation and say, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm noticing that this eye is, you know, perhaps out of alignment. What do you think? And I want mm-hmm. them to see it as well. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just all part of that same cycle of of working together, whether I'm a student or uh, an instructor or, you know, there's a viewer any kind of relationship. It's it's all just about providing observations. And then you as the artist get to do what you want with that. And, you know, for the most part, whenever somebody calls out an error, they're right. <laughs> they're seeing it better. <laughs> they're seeing it far more objectively than I am because I'm locked into the drawing in some way. And my least favorite part of the drawing process is coming back to a drawing a day later, realizing that I had made, a, I had a huge blind spot that I didn't see something clearly. I hate that. <laughs> and so I, in the end, I'm ultimately grateful for students who call me out on those things because now I can address it before the drawing's done. And it's not something that I'm happy with and then come back to and realize that you know, I have my spirit crushed because my eyes are out of alignment or the beak is, is, just not right and i had just become blind to it so right maybe to extend what you were saying and that is you know you get better by by accepting critiques right and i think that that's really hard as an artist right because it there's that trade off between what is me and what is the better me right what is the me that i would aspire to be and i'm not sure i know what that is yet as an artist but being open to critique, I think, is what you're also teaching people and being able to handle that kind of the eyes are too low, the ears are too wide, whatever the case, being able to receive that and work with it, I think is maybe people aren't 
aware that they're learning that, but it is something, you know, I'm trying to, even myself, I'm trying to create for the listener and the listeners I have with the show is, is more of a community area, a Discord server, something like that, where people can talk and share in a more of a protected area. You know, I've done that before where you post in Facebook groups or uh, various other art websites, community websites, and some of them can be a little bit harsh in the way they deliver criticism. Um, and you can only get so much criticism from family and friends because they're going to be like, that's really good. <laughs> you know? yeah. and that's not what you necessarily want to hear. I mean, you want to hear it, right? But you're thinking, if I did it again, how would I do it differently? And it's it's evolving that that question and being able to handle the answer that as a, an artist, that loop needs to be refined over time, right? Yes. Yeah. And we talk about that in the series and, and every now and then we'll come... We'll hit an episode where that becomes a, a larger topic of discussion. And there's definitely a, a kind of a practice and a skill to providing and receiving feedback about work. And and, and a lot of what I do when I, when I taught on ground would be, you know, just having open discussions about that. You know, it's very vulnerable putting your work up for somebody to look at. And it, it, it of course, it feels great if, if everybody's amazed by it. Um, <laughs> But the, what I try to encourage is the idea that we get excited by opportunities, not kind of the results, I guess, if that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. it's not about making the best drawing. It's ha- like having the, the greatest opportunity for growth in that moment. Um, and that's why I, I, I've mentioned in the drawing series, similar to what you just said, is that you know, finding the person who can give you the feedback you need is really valuable. And somebody who delivers it in the way that you need it, um, because you know, so, yeah, showing if you take take your a, a work of art that you've done and you've shown it, you show it to a family member who has no experience with art. It's kind of not fair to them to for us to ask them for feedback. They may not have ever considered <laughs> this stuff. Right. You know, they're not going to know what to say. And then we put them on the spot and say, "Well, tell me what you think." They're like, yeah. "It looks great," or "It looks like crap." I don't know. Like, yeah. it it takes time to develop an understanding of what you're observing. We don't often take time, and that's so much of what drawing really does in general, right? Is it forces us to take time to look at the world and understand why do we see it this way? Like, wh- what, is, what does this all mean? And art is no different. And so I think finding those critique circles where the, where the, the people you're, you're connecting with challenge you and provide specific observations um, in a supportive way, knowing that we're all here to grow and that they're, they're, they're excited to find things that you could improve on because they know that's an opportunity. The next painting is going to be even better. Mm-hmm. You know, that's really exciting. I, I mean, I, you know, I, I tell students, I say, the last thing I want to do is have a, a painting or a drawing that I'm 100% happy with <laughs> because I, I want to be 99% happy with it <laughs> so that that 1% is what keeps me going. And then also trying to, you know, it, it's a skill, again, delivering feedback and receiving feedback. So encouraging um, students to just provide observations. Um, and so maybe you say, you know, the eyes are too far apart. You could also, you know, you could remove the word too and just say, hey, look, check out the, the space between the eyes. Just look there because I'm seeing something's off there. And, and try to remove the word you and talk about the work. Um, those, there are subtle things that you can do in the language that becomes more encouraging versus discouraging. Because as soon mm-hmm. as you were, use the word you and like, well, you didn't do a very good job here, the, the, the artist is going to take that ego hit and is going to be closed up and defensive and is not going to hear anything else about how to fix it. 
Um, but if you could say, hey, take a look at this area. What do you see happening here? Um, because I'm, I'm seeing something that doesn't feel quite right and encourage them to look. They're going to see it and they're going to see the solution and they're going to be able to achieve uh, you know, a better drawing the next time more, more easily. So it is a big part of taking a class and working together as a community is, is providing observations. And, and then as an artist, you can say, hey, you know what? I like that. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> you know, who knows? Like, yeah. sure, I see that, but there's something there that I don't want to correct right now. And when I look at some of the pieces you've done, and maybe we can identify a couple, but one that struck me, I think, is the strawberry. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because it, nature has these wonderful patterns for display, right? And if you don't see the pattern immediately, that, that shape, that strawberry, which has that interesting seed pattern on it, I mean, the seeds help define the shape of the berry, um, but they're also quite unique. And when I was watching you do that, it reminded me of a, an echinacea, a purple coneflower I had done, because it has a very unique pattern. And trying to draw that, it took me four times erasing that purple coneflower before I got the pattern right. And just watching you develop that over time and, and trying to be mindful of the pattern and marking the ticks for the seeds and all that was really interesting watch. And it also came up in my thought process with another artist who posted a walnut. She had drawn a walnut, the shell, not the innards. And she was really struggling with it. And, and it came out beautifully. And I said, well, there's no pattern. It's, it's hard to draw a walnut because there's no pattern. It's just there's random bumps and ridges and valleys. And can you talk about maybe the strawberry and this idea of patterns and maybe a couple of other pieces that you think develop specific skills. And I'm not sure if you feel that maybe the strawberry, that was the focus of that one. For me, it was. But I'm not sure. Maybe you can comment on that a little bit. You know, I, I think you really locked in on it there. I mean, that when I saw that reference photo, I mean, most, of the ref, most of the photos that we use in the reference, I try to, I try to take them as, myself as much as possible. Mm -hmm. But I was looking through it, and I found that. I'm like, that, there's something there. And it was that pattern. Um, and my first impulse was to say, there's no way <laughs> I'm not doing this. <laughs> like, um, and then I thought, well, I, that's not something that I would recommend to my viewers or the students. I'm like, dang it, I, got to, I have to take my own medicine here. So I'm going to do this one and then try to understand that and try to find that relationship between you know, the structure, the pattern of the seeds and the form of the strawberry and try to, how do you find that balance so that it, it because my initial response, when you look at a strawberry, it's the strawberry. And then you look deeper and you're like, all right, there's these seeds. And you look another layer deeper and then there's this pattern to it. And so that ultimately becomes the process as well. Try to allow the drawing to emerge in a way that our observations do and aligning with our observations. So think about the whole and then there's that texture that's integrated into it. And then within that texture, there's this pattern that may not be evident right away, but when you, when you stop and see it, then all of a sudden it, it all kind of comes together. And that, that came out of doing that preparatory um, drawing in advance. Um, and I, knew I, I knew I needed to do it on that one for sure. And that's the one that lended, it, it lent itself to working in graphite because it gave me a little bit more control. I, I don't know how effective I would have been in charcoal. It just would have been a different process. But I, I think the, it, it comes back, back around again to that, the, the process of drawing and allowing the whole thing to emerge. And if we put our, 
our attention on the observations we're making and questioning those observations and trying to come at it in as many different ways as possible, then, then those patterns become more visible. Uh, so something that becomes so complex, it can sometimes be overwhelming. And we just get overwhelmed by the whole complexity. We lose a sense of the forms. And something that is too simple may not be, have enough to hold our attention. But I think the, yeah, it, it comes back around to the idea that our brain is processing that information. It's going to tell us what's most important. So when we look at the, if we look at a strawberry, what's most important is that it's edible. That's a berry that we can eat, right? Not what it looks like. Our brain, all that, all that information that our brain processes to tell us why we know it's a strawberry gets, stayed, it gets locked in our subconscious. And the only thing that comes to our conscious mind is the fact that it's a strawberry. And then we prioritize what we do with it. As artists, the more you draw, the more you paint, that priority shifts, right? You know, then I look at a strawberry and you're like, oh my God, that color, that's pretty awesome. Or <laughs> that form, that's really neat. You know, it is less about it as, as an edible object. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then you start, yeah, you go into those layers deeper of like, well, why do we know this? Like, what is that form really? What are the, what are we, what are the preconceptions about the form that we need to overcome? And then you start to, you start to see things and you, and you, you try to think broadly and then you look specifically and, and you look at it from, from different angles and you try, if you, if you have the object in front of you changing light situations, you're, you're trying to find ways to analyze the subject um, as deeply as possible because you're, you're, it's all in, it's all working in your mind, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's giving you a better understanding of the subject, the better, you're, better you understand the subject, the better your drawing will be. And then by the same uh, token, your drawing process helps you to develop an understanding of that subject. So it's this feedback loop. And so that's why I think flexibility is so important in the drawing process because so, like, I needed to draw, I needed to get into drawing that strawberry in order for me to see that pattern. If I had rendered and I've had, if I had done a complete linear kind of marking of it up and then shaded it in, if I'd gone through that process, I don't know as if I would have seen that pattern. That makes sense. Yeah. So. No, I, the way you approached it was just, it, it caused me to rethink some of the work that I've been doing. And the other thing, when I mean, you were talking about this idea that we perceive it to be a strawberry because it has that shape, it has the seeds. Somehow, you know, there's some AI. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it, maybe it's not artificial. It's RI, right? Real intelligence that's going on in our head to be able to say that's a strawberry. But you, you do talk about, through a lot of your work, this idea of, of squinting and blurring your vision. And, and what I think... The one I thought really st- kind of struck it with me was the walking path through the the marsh, the kind of zigzag walking path, because it it it's beautiful, and but you don't you you have to spend most of your time with that one sitting thirty thousand feet above the the drawing, right? And it reminded me of a conversation I had with Robert Bateman when he was talking about a polar bear he had done and trying to draw the fur and the hairs. And you don't draw the individual hairs. You're suggesting texture and contour. And you do that wonderfully in that piece. And maybe you can talk about that, this idea of squinting or blurring and, and, and managing a detail in a way that isn't drawing detail. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely, it's, and it's something you know, most drawing instructors teach, you know, that, that idea of, of squinting. Um, squinting prioritizes value relationships. So it's, a, it's an essential part of my painting practice is going through with, with blurred vision. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what's happening kind of neurologically when you do that though, is it's taking the subject away from what you're looking at. Um, and I talk about this, I think in one of the earlier episodes, we talk about these three different visual pathways. So when light, as light enters our eyes and it, it 
hits our retina, gets converted into an electrical signal that goes into our brain. And then our brain interprets that electrical signal and, and creates the image of what we're looking at. Um, but it goes through these three levels where the first level is very primitive. It's just it's the pure raw data, right? And then the next level above that defines it. And it says, right, this is, you know, this is a strawberry. I eat it. <laughs> right? um, and then the level above that is the emotional connection to it. It's, it, it applies the memories and our, our kind of what it feels like. And, you know, maybe other senses get pulled in. We tend to exist on that third level because that's what's most valuable to us as humans. What I try to encourage my students to do is to and shut that down, right? Stop thinking. I want to make you dumber, <laughs> right? Because and so we're just kind of taking in the raw data and then building from there. So then, out of that, if you start, if we create a drawing in that same visual process, then if we if we focus initially on what is that pure data, that raw data, then that becomes a foundation on which we build some sort of emotional element to it. And then we can start to build things on top of it that really pull people in. Um, but squinting helps you to do that because it it makes it less recognizable for the brain what that object is. And especially if you go completely, you know, try to blur your eyes as much as possible, it's sometimes really hard to see even what you're looking at. And then and all of a sudden your, your brain will start to latch on to that, not the object itself. It won't get fixated on a specific element in that scene. Um, and so doing that I think is really helpful. And then when you realize, when you do that, when you squint, all those details disappear all that texture just kind of fades away and you realize how unimportant that really is. Right? Um, and, but our, we're, we're primed to really kind of latch on to those details. So if we go to that focus too early and we try to render those details before we've developed a form or a sense of light and shadow, then all those details become overwhelming and we don't know what they're attached to. And, and then the whole drawing kind of falls apart. So that's just, yeah, that's kind of my take on squinting and, texture. <laughs> yeah, I think we all need to do more of that. Yeah. So I, I wanted to, I've, I saw you doing something. I don't know if there's a term for this, but I do the same thing. And when I saw you do it, it's like, oh, he does it too. And what I notice, and it's just observing myself, I think more than others, but because I watch you draw so much, uh, I see you, you doing it. And that is you're working on an area. Let's say you're working on the um, uh, the green parts of the strawberry. And you're working on that, and all of a sudden you move down to the tip of the strawberry while you're still drawing the green bits. Like like you I and, and you could see that almost that the, the green bits that you're working on, the line isn't maybe where you intended it to be. Like it's it's like you're constantly scanning outside of what you're drawing. And I've done this to the point where I mess up where I'm drawing because I'm looking at, you know, I'm I'm working on the tail of a bird. And I'm drawing the tail of the bird, and I'm thinking, okay, this is where. And I'm watching the beak, and I'm thinking that beak's not right. I got to go back and finish. And I look down at the tail, and I've made a mistake. Do you find yourself doing the same thing? And is there what is that? Ah, <laughs> that makes me so happy to hear you say that. Um, no, that is that to me is an essential part of the drawing process. It's it, for me what's really valuable is is developing the skill of working on one area while your awareness is on the areas around it. Because that's what allows everything to become unified. Um, and so it's our brain is primed to lock on to something. And so it's something we kind of have to override is this, this, do, this desire to focus and fixate on an area. Because when we do that, we lose sense of where it is in the context of the rest of the drawing. And so 
you know, I'll be working on an area, but you're like you're, you said, I may be working on one end of the strawberry, but my awareness is on the other and, and then vice versa, um, because I want to make sure that they're, they're in, they have a proper relationship first before yeah. I start any sort of rendering. And, it, and the, if we spend, you know, 75% of the drawing in that area focusing on relationships, then the final 25% is just adding these details that pull it all together. Um, but I've, I just, I've had so many drawings fall apart because I'll, I'll find myself working in one area and I'll just, I'll finish that and I'll move to the next, finish that, move to the next, finish that. And then I've lost this thread and none of the parts fit together properly. Working in your periphery, I think is really helpful. Um, and then there's also, you know, there's, there's kind of precedent for that in, in the brain, the way the brain works in that, you know, we become sensitive to colors and values in different regions of our retina, you know, so our center of focus is prioritizes things like texture um, and detail, but not necessarily color or value relationships. So actually, we become more sensitive to value and color relationships in the area just around, just outside of our center of vision. And, and, it, and it changes in different light levels. And so what I've, what I found is I actually see things better and more accurately when I'm focusing on what's outside of my center of vision. And so that becomes a big, big part of that. And so then what will happen is I'll be working on one area, but yeah, my mind is somewhere else. <laughs> you know? And, uh, but it's, that's, it's all part of it. I'll, and I know that when I move to that other spot, my mind will be on that part I was just working on. Right. It's almost like that offset viewing. If you want to look at the Andromeda galaxy, you don't look at it. You look to the side of it. And, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or yeah, even like a full moon, for example, if you look at the full moon, it just is too bright. But if you look off just to the left or the right, all of a sudden you can see far more detail um, in it. So, yeah. So if someone wanted, I mean, you have a large number of videos here. If someone wanted to start and they were maybe at a beginner level, which, which subject comes to mind that you think would be a good first take for people? Um, I think, well, so the early ones that I did, I think the first one I did was a cup was real basic and I covered some fundamental drawing um, practices, comparative measuring, site measuring, drawing ovals, things like that, that I I noticed that a lot of students will come in on whatever episode um, that they're excited by, they happen to come across, and then we'll come back around episode one and watch the first couple. And that I think is generally a healthy approach. But having said that, I, I think it's important to be excited by what you're working on. And so if the subject, if, if you have no interest in working on the cup, if you're like, oh, that's boring, <laughs> just jump in. Whatever gets you excited and gets you moving, I think right. what you'll find value in. And then if you are open to kind of challenging yourself and say, look, I'm willing to do this boring subject because it might teach me something, then go for that. But I mean, whatever gets you drawing, I think is really, gonna, is really most critical. What's been the hardest one for you to work on? What did you the find the most challenging? The self-portrait. Self-portrait, yeah. <laughs> it was brutal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, naturally, I'm just, I've struggled with portraits. I, I know how they should be done. And then I see, I see artists that do them. And, and I realize that I have a lot more practice <laughs> to do <laughs> on that. Um, but that was, it was the most challenging, but the most, probably most rewarding at the same time because of that interaction. I had so many um, viewers helping me through that. And then I did another portrait of this, uh, this young woman and it was the same way. It was going off the rails. It wasn't, wasn't coming together. Um, but I think as a group, we were able to identify what needed to be uh, improved on and we got it 
more aligned with the reference image um but it's still yeah portraits in general are challenging the self-portrait was really a, a hard one to to do i did multiple attempts in advance of it too and i'm like this <laughs> this is not helping me so i admire you taking that challenge on I, oh thanks uh, yeah i'm not uh i did a self-portrait a digital one of myself and i made it completely obscure and weird um oh and nice I'm, just, I'm gonna leave it <laughs> i'm gonna leave that uh that endeavor for another time, I think, before I did it in pencil. Nice. And so if people wanted to do these, there's there's a bit they can do. Like you can download the reference image, correct? Mm-hmm. If people wanted yep. to take this on, that's a link in the in the comments or in the description for the video. And then there's a place where people can post these, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you know, so I, I work for artistnetwork.com um and yeah, we built out a, a page for drawing together on there. So if you go to artistnetwork.com at the top, you'll see a link to drawing together. And if you open that up, that has a lot of information. It's going to have a recent video, and it's going to list out all the different episodes by subject. So you can kind of pick and choose which one, which subject you think is going to be most interesting. And then when you click on that, it takes you to an individual landing page for that show, where you'll be able to watch the show as well as see comments and, and see the work that others have shared. And that is something that's really exciting. When we developed that, to me, there is a shift in how you know, what drawing together meant, because now I get to see what people are actually posting and what they're doing and see growth and see areas where they're, they're struggling. And, and I, I'm not critiquing anything like that um, in this. I don't, I don't like to provide critiques unless somebody asks me specifically. But the, it's, just, it's just amazing to see that. And, and many people are posting right after the live event. So we go live Mondays and Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern. And in it immediately up on YouTube, it um, it will it'll stay up as a recording, so you can watch the recording again. Um, but I think the best place to go is to go to Arts Network, um, and then you find all the information. Then it'll link out to YouTube from there. Or go if you go to the Artist Network YouTube page, you can subscribe and set up alerts for that. Awesome, yeah. And I'll provide notes to uh, to all of these things that we've talked about in the show notes, obviously as well. Excellent. It's important people get there. Um, so I want to just go back to pencils. Mm-hmm. When you're doing pencil work, um, you know, everyone wants to know about the tools, right? And so I know there's one artist I follow. He only uses uh, Tombow 6B. That's all he draws with. What's your comment about pencils and maybe the preparation for them as well? Because, you know, I just bought a new eraser that, or eraser, sharpener that will uh, sharpen the wood, then sharpen the pencil. And, I, you know, you do that. I've seen you where you've removed all the wood and you use an X-Acto knife. So maybe talk about what pencils you think people should be using and preparation for those, uh, for those tips. Yeah, I, that's kind of a tough one for me to answer because what I, what I worry about is that I've seen students become paralyzed when they don't have the right materials. <laughs> and that mm-hmm. is my greatest fear. And it, so for me, I think it's... A number yellow number two pencil is awesome. I, like that is, I, if I have that, I feel confident that I can come up with something. Right? Um, it's it's versatile. You know, it's easy. It's got the eraser on the end, and I can just go for it. Right. You know, so that is generally my recommendation: is just have a sketch, you know, pad of paper and a pencil, and then go for it. And then anything above that is icing on the cake, as far as I'm concerned. You know, but I do see the value in really 
having quality materials. And I don't know enough about the brands to be able to recommend one brand over another. Okay. You know, I use a, an ebony pencil I like a lot, um, and that's a Prismacolor um, product. And if I, I will often use that, I think, um, as my graphite. I've tried carbon pencils, and I haven't quite been able to really figure that out. Yellow number two and ebony pencil are kind of my workhorses. Um, and then I will I'll sh- kind of shave away the wood casing to kind of expose the core, at least a couple inches of it. Yep. Um, and then maybe sharpen the one end. I like to have a, a, a pencil sharpener sharpened end, a nice fine point, and then I'll have one where I've sharpened with my, my razor blade. And I like to have that exposed cord so I can get a broad area. Um, and what, I, what I'll do is then I'll sand it on a piece of paper so I get, I get a nice broad area so I can fill in big areas quickly. And, and that's just really the way I, I work. I have a hard time when I have a range of pencils to choose from because it, I, I just get locked into the drawing. I, having to stop and think about, well, what do I move to next? It gets really hard. Um, mm-hmm. And so if I would recommend for anybody, if you, if you are worried about it, I, if anything, prioritize the, the, the softer materials is what I would recommend more than mm-hmm. anything. But um, that's just it aligned more closely with charcoal drawing as, as a softer material. Um, but if you are, I mean, if you like control and you like fine detail, then you'll want to have something that's a little bit harder. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, I've used mechanical pencils for forever, uh, both the, the, was it the two millimeter or three millimeter as well as the 0.3, just because of the nature of graphite and getting the detail. But um, I just got some Tombows and uh, they're wonderful. I mean, it's nice to have a good pencil that has the the pencil in the core of the, <laughs> in the yes. center of the core, in the center of the wood casing, right? Yep. Um, yep. Now, we talked before we started recording about this idea that, you know, when it comes to tools for drawing, it's not just pencils. You know, some of the tools to draw are actually erasers and stumps. And so maybe if you want to talk about that as well, because I think people think that an eraser is to remove your mistakes. And that's not always true. Yes, correct. Yeah, and that's something we, we cover in quite a few of the episodes is one of the things that I like to reinforce is the idea that whatever tool you have is an opportunity to contribute to the form. And and that's not something that I really understood until this series. I mean, uh, or understood how to articulate. I had always um, avoided using shading stumps. I'd always just use my hands to blend because I thought, well, they're just tools for kind of smudging out hatch marks or whatever. And I would just learn to not make distinct hatch marks. You know, I would blend a different way. Um, but throughout the series, I'm like, oh, I'll just give it a shot. <laughs> and I found <laughs> I love using it so much um, when, I, when I flip my thinking into realizing that I'm actually I'm drawing with it. It isn't, it isn't a separate stage from laying down the material and then just smoothing it out. It's picking up material that I can use to make marks that contribute to the form of the subject. And, and I love I, – now it's I – I can't imagine drawing without it really. It's, it's what I use to kind of lay out the basic structure – I use it on its side a lot, you know, just like I use a piece of charcoal or, you know, on the pencil. And it, I, I, it really makes some nice marks that feel very natural and it, it lends itself to creating shapes of light and shadow, in particular in, in finer areas. Because we, we, I, I feel like when, with those marks from the shading stump, it, those marks read as shapes, not lines, which I think is something that's really important. Yeah, that's really hard to... I'm working on a piece now where I'm doing a background and I'm trying to achieve that kind of camera bokeh effect. Yes. Yep. That's where, you know, using the stump on some of the, 
the 2B or the 4B work that I've done and then just carry that graphite on the stump to those areas is a, is a much better opportunity than trying to shade that, right? Nice. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Have you ever used water-soluble graphite? No, but I've, I've had several uh, viewers ask me about that, and that's something that I really like to explore. I've seen it used. We shot a video with uh, Keiko Tanabe, um, and she was experimenting with it a little bit. She's a watercolor artist. Um, and I when I was just watching your work in your sketchbook and it was amazing to see this. Um, so I need to get my hands on some of that and give it a shot. Yeah. I just ordered some and I did some, uh, I, I was doing some urban sketching. So I did uh, ink to piece and then I used watercolor and then I preserved a bit and I threw down some water soluble graphite and then pushed it around with some water. And it was like, man, I'm going to do a whole drawing on this. Like I'll, I'll still ink it, but this idea of using graphite with a brush just kind of broke my brain. And I was immediately thinking, <laughs> I, got, I got to try this, man. It's uh, And so I bought a little kit. I think it's got three different levels of hardness. And uh, it's there's no casing to these pencils. It's just a solid piece of uh, graphite or water-soluble graphite. And it was kind of fun. I, yeah, that sounds fascinating. <laughs> I mean, I used to, like, you know, I played around with powdered charcoal or powdered graphite and... Um, building areas and maybe apply some water to that to create some sort of toned surface, but never really as a tool for creating form. It was mostly to just build up a surface um, for so that, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about that. I've been hearing a lot about it. <laughs> so I want to ask you a question and then we'll get to the homework, but I always ask this of people who've done a lot of teaching. What, what have you learned? What, can you think of a lesson that you've learned from your students? that you've taken away and, and has made you a better artist? That's a really good question. I think the, the thing that stands out to me is, is the mindset of being a student. Um, and, you know, whether it's my own personal insecurity or what, but I don't, I have a really hard time latching on to the identity of a quote unquote master artist. Right. You know, I've mm -hmm. been painting and drawing for a long time. I technically have my master's, right? <laughs> but I like, I don't, it doesn't make sense to me. I associate myself so much more with a student and, and I always would, it would always fall flat when I would try to kind of demonstrate as though I was a master, like these are these master tech something. And, but the seeing students get excited by, challenges and challenging assumptions is really exciting for me. And I like that as well. Like, I just like being involved in that in some way. And, and so I think, yeah, students who ask questions and can challenge me on why I did something like, it, it, like why did you make that mark there? And I would get those questions early on and it would throw me off because I'm like, I don't know why I made that mark. <laughs> and that forced me to really think about like what was happening three or four marks before that. Like how, how would all of these thoughts and decisions align to, to, and to result in this, in this drawing? Um, and that was, that was really kind of profound when a students would start to ask those questions. Mm, interesting. So I always ask for homework. I think leaving the show, uh, people listening, even in their car when you get home, always could do a bit of homework. And so what would you recommend for homework? The, I think the, the, most, the, the most profound growth I've experienced as an artist is when doing master copies, but in a, a master copy in a particular way. Um, and so I think my assignment for, 
for anybody who's listening who wants an assignment is to do a master copy with your intent of recreating the marks that the artist made, the, the thoughts of the artist, not the image. All right. So moving it, don't no, no gritting off, no projecting of the image is not about making a duplicate of that. It's about deconstructing the marks and the thought process behind them. So if it's if you see a quick gestural mark, do a quick gestural mark, even if yours doesn't look exactly like theirs. And, you know, if it's heavy, go heavy. If it's light, go light and try to figure out how did they start this? How do they end this? Where do they kind of correct? Find sketches in particular versus finished paintings or finished drawings and trying to reverse engineer it um, because the, the mantra that I give throughout the, many of the, the live sessions is that marks are thoughts. And so every mark that we make starts as a thought in our mind and it travels down our arm like an electrical signal and it comes out on the page. And when we see sketches of great artists, that's an opportunity for us to put ourselves in the mind of the artist. We're mind reading. We're seeing those thoughts expressed on the page. And so... Uh, kind of take that as a challenge. You know, somebody like Rembrandt or somebody where you can find a preparatory sketch of Michelangelo would be would be great. Yeah, try to recreate the 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 types of marks that they're making. Hmm. Have to do that. <laughs> I, Excellent. Bit, I look forward to seeing what you come up yeah, with. That's it. I'm a little bit scared about that, but I'll give it a shot. I think. Yeah. So uh, that's awesome. I'm mindful of of time, and uh, so I wanted to. Uh, Thank you. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to mention or talk about before we get into Scott. Can I ask you where people can find you? I do have a website. Um, it's scottmeyerart.com. Um, I on there very infrequently updating things. Uh, so uh, you know, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram. I've got you know, sites there where I post more of my than my works. I typically kind of post my paintings there, and then on artistnetwork.com. You know that uh, check out the uh, the drawing together series there. So uh, that's where I, I really enjoy. Hopefully, anybody listening can join in and share their work. So that's awesome. Well, I thank you so much for coming on the show. I uh, I, I tell you, I didn't get through all the questions because I think we could just go sideways with all of this. But uh, there was so much information, so much helpful stuff, and uh, I think you've made me uh, a better artist. And in, in watching some of your work over the last three months in the drawing. So I appreciate you doing that. I know it's hard. I know video production is hard. And I just wanted to say, you know, openly that uh, I really appreciate the time you put into this. And I know so many other artists do as well. Well, I thank you very much. I'm glad to hear that. And, uh, you know, thank you for putting this all together. It's really awesome to see you sharing your artistic journey with people. Um, and I think that's a lot of, a lot of, what's kind of at the heart of what I'm trying to get at too. So it's, it's great to connect with you here. So that's awesome. Awesome. Great. Thank you so much, Scott. All right. Thank you. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye. Show notes, including links to everything Scott and I spoke about can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 31. You can find links to all my social media accounts at drawinginspiration.fm, including my Instagram, which is Mike underscore Henley, where I post all my art. Follow me or tag me so I can see what you've created recently. Until next time, be kind to one another and keep drawing. Theme music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod. Mm-hmm.